It is, I think, that we are all so alone in what lies deepest in our souls, so unable to find the words and perhaps the courage to speak with unlocked hearts that we don't know at all that it is the same with others. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 51, The Man Who Received a Severe Mercy, After Hours with Will Voss. Well, good morning, everyone, or good evening, whenever you're listening to uh, Pints with Jack. This is, of course, your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where together with David and Matt, we break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. After finishing our season-long look at The Four Loves, we enjoyed Ecumenism Month, Apologetics Month, and for the past few weeks, we've had A Severe Mercy Month, where Matt and I read and discussed that famous book by Sheldon Van Auken. And today, we wrap up the series by speaking to a man who wrote the biography of Sheldon Van Auken, Pastor Will Voss. Let me give you a little information about Will. He was born in Sleepy Hollow, New York, grew up in La Jolla, California, and he and his wife Becky have been married since 1988 and have three grown sons. His own father was Jim Voss, former organized crime wiretapper who came to personal faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of Billy Graham in 1949, and Will, I bet we could probably have a whole episode just on your dad. We could. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Drama from the University of California, San Diego, a fellow UC grad, and has a Master of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, where I hear the buildings look like they're from Oxford. He served in churches across the United States and is currently the pastor of First Congregational Church of Yarmouth in, on Cape Cod. He's the president of Will Voss Ministries and the author of 14 books, including Mere Theology, A Guide to the Thought of C.S. Lewis, and the book we'll be discussing today, The Man Who Received a Severe Mercy. Will Voss, welcome finally to Pints with Jack. It's great to be with you at last. Yes, happy, to, so happy to have you join us. I'm grateful that we have the excuse. Now, you just had a wedding anniversary, is that right? I did. It was our 34th wedding anniversary. But it's it's funny. We always think about um, like the year we're going into, you know, uh -huh. so we're starting our 35th year. And uh, I had mentioned that like the night before and my wife got confused the, the next day and she posted on Facebook that we were celebrating our 35th anniversary. So oh, okay. <laughs> it's so hard to keep track after a while. <laughs> Now, I was told there'd be no math in seminary, and they lied to me. And so, so going into your 35th year- Oh, you year, must have gone to the wrong seminary then. That <laughs> was very important to me, that there be no math. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I once went to a marriage conference with my wife, um, some speakers uh, who were friends of hers, and we sat with this couple beforehand, and um, she said, oh, we've been married for 45 years, but it only feels like 45 minutes underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice That's it to say, not we, good. yeah, no, we didn't ask them for any marriage advice. So <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. Yeah. But what do, what's your marriage advice? I mean, you wrote a book about a man with a, with an incredible marriage who was influenced by another man with an incredible marriage. And it sounds like you've enjoyed a great season with Becky. Um, any, uh, any thoughts as we conclude the four loves year? Oh, I think the most important thing is commitment. Hmm. That's what I tell couples whose weddings I officiate if they ask me. Mm -hmm. I find a lot of couples today very uncurious, you know. <laughs> mm. They don't have great curiosity and, and many are, are not asking questions or seeking advice. But when they, mm. when they do, that's always a good sign, I think, you know, that they want to learn from others. But uh, so if they do ask, I, I say, I, you know, I think commitment is, is number one, just being committed to each other no matter what. Hmm. How does that make its way uh, make its way evident in day the day to day for you all? Oh, in the day to day, that you just you know that that giving up is not a option. You know hmm. that you're going to work through things when um, you feel fit to be tied. You know, mm -hmm. angry or frustrated or 
empty in some way or when you get to those patches in marriage where it just um, isn't what you expected it was going to be or isn't as fulfilling as you thought it was going to be, you know, you work your way through it. Mm. Oh, that's great. I can't wait to hear more. And I'd love to hear um, uh, your thoughts about, uh, I read Severe Mercy long before I was married. And so I think it colored some of my ideas. I'd love to hear uh, what Severe Mercy did for you in, in your marriage as we as we dig into the book. But before we do, um, I wonder if you had a chance to get something to drink. I do have something to drink. I'm drinking Perrier. Okay. Not um, <laughs> not gin uh, or what was it? Gin or bourbon? Is that what Van Ocken offered you? Yes. I think he offered me gin and I said, uh, I don't drink gin. But actually, before I could get the words out, he he looked at me with this sort of feigned look of horror <laughs> coming across his face. And he said, you're not a teetotaler, are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you settled on sherry, right? I said no. I just don't drink gin. <laughs> yeah, I like your cup there, your uh, modeling Ooh. college mug. Yes, and about a year or about a month from right now, as we're recording it, actually, listeners, we're recording it on week three of of Severe Mercy Month, and so we're recording it on the Tuesday where where uh, Matt and I wrapped up uh, our third. Uh, of three weeks of looking at the episode, but a month from now I'll be in England with Northwind um, Seminary. We'll be doing our Oxford pilgrimage, and then I'll go on to the Oxbridge Conference. And wonderful, can I have a chance? Have you? Do you know Simon Horobin? Have you encountered him? I yet? do not. A maudlin English professor who's working on Lewis's annotations of literary works. And so Walter Wonderful. introduced us, and uh, and so he's invited me to spend some time with him, and I think I'll even get to go sit in hall and and have dinner at Maudlin. So looking forward to going back. Well, those annotations are in some of his books, uh, as you know, very very elaborate, very detailed, and yeah. take some time to get on to his handwriting. But after <laughs> you've done that, it's yeah. it's well, quite a lot of fun to to look at his library books. Certainly is. Charlie Starr has made a cottage industry of that, and yes, his whole study of the way that the F in C.S. Lewis's uh, handwriting changes significantly. So I call him the effing C.S. Lewis handwriting expert. <laughs> That's probably not the right thing to do. Well, so we're toasting our Patreon supporters. I'm going to toast all of those Patreon supporters who will be joining us in a couple of months or in about a month when we have a, a special event with uh, Dr. Michael Ward. So to our Patreon supporters, especially those who will join us in England. Cheers. Cheers. Well, we did a, a little introduction to your about your life, but I would love to hear more. I'm sure that that just scraped the surface. You've written so many books about Lewis, and I'd love to hear about your life in ministry. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Oh, gosh, where do you want to start? Um, <laughs> you, you talked about where I was born and, and grew up, and um, I guess the most important thing going back to the beginning of my life that connects to our conversation today is uh, that I became an Anglophile at a young age, mm. you know, and I didn't even know what that was. I, I okay. fell in love with England as a little tiny boy looking at my parents' slides of a trip that they had taken to London. And in addition to that, we had in the 1960s a... Um, uh, Time Life Atlas that had these huge, I mean, you have to imagine yourself back into a time when very few books had color photographs, mm -hmm. you know, but this Time Life Atlas had color photographs of different places around the world. And the only pictures I was interested in were the ones of London and of England. And um, mm. So that happened long to me, long before uh, I encountered C.S. Lewis or Sheldon Van Auken. And um, so there was something in me that was drawing me to all things English. Hmm. Oh, fantastic. Did, did you have an English connection at all with some of your reading as a child? Oh, just sort of the, the standard things. Um, you know, my, my parents weren't really great readers, so I didn't mm -hmm. grow up in a house full of books like C.S. Lewis did. <laughs> you know, my, my introduction to fantasy stories was through this series of 
Walt Disney Golden Books, oh, um, yeah. which were these thick editions, not like the little thin golden books you think of. Yeah. Um, and one of them had this uh, yellow spine, and it was stories from other lands. And that was my favorite one. I really didn't care about the other three mm -hmm. in the series. Mm. And my absolute favorite story in that collection was Mary Poppins. Oh, and wow. I don't think I had even seen the film. I don't remember going to many movies as a child. And um, I just asked my mother to read that story to me over and over again. Oh, that's so there was, was, again, something even through that sort of distorted lens of Walt Disney that <laughs> called out to me from England. Yeah, it's, when I think of Lewis looking at the mountains of Mourn and getting those stirrings that later, you know, grew into fruition for him, you know, I, it, yeah, those, those early influences, I think, stick with us. So Absolutely. Well, how did you first encounter C.S. Lewis? What was your first kind of coming across him? So I was in fourth grade, public school, Southern California. My teacher read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to our class. Mm. And I was enchanted. I, I fell in love with Narnia. I, th I think part of it at first was that here I was, a little boy who had grown up in New York, and my parents had moved me to Southern California, and I missed white Christmases, you know, mm -hmm. and... So just the enchantment of walking through a wardrobe door into that winter wonderland, mm -hmm. that's what caught me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just fell in love with that picture as I think C.S. Lewis did. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it never occurred to me until years later. I mean, obviously, you know, it was always winter in Narnia because of this spell from this wicked witch um mm -hmm. but the beauty of that winter wonderland is what came across to me and mm. it just drew me right in and then um you know when she got to the end of the book she must have told us you know that this was the first book in a series of seven and that was the only time that i ever went home and told my parents you have to buy me these books Oh, wow. And I had, you know, other than the Walt Disney Golden Book I was telling you about, mm -hmm. I'd never read any fantasy. Hmm. And I just I just knew I had to have more of Narnia. And huh. so my parents went, and I was a very slow reader. I still am. Mm -hmm. My parents went out and bought me the, the set, uh, the paperback box set in 1972. Okay. And I just started making my way slowly through those books. Mm, mm, and for gosh. me at that time, I it's it's funny what happens in your childish brain, you know. Uh -huh. Here I was sitting in a classroom of kids hearing our teacher read this, but I felt like it was just for me. Mm. I never talked with the teacher about it. I never talked with the other children about it. And, you know, I, I, I felt in my heart of hearts that C.S. Lewis had created this just, just for me. Hmm. So I can remember a year or two later seeing another child in my class reading one of the Narnia books, uh -huh. you know, during individual reading time and sure. in school. And I'm sure I didn't say anything to her, but I, my internal reaction was, how dare you read? Wow. <laughs> <One> mice, <laughs> you know, that's my, it's like my own private world. So I had no idea that mm -hmm. it never occurred to me, you know, that, that C.S. Lewis was this famous writer and that millions of people around the world were mm -hmm. reading Narnia. So you had kind of the opposite of the what you do reaction, you know, when Lewis yes, and Arthur. I, yeah. That didn't come until later. Okay. Much, much later for me. Okay. So you read all the Chronicles. How, about how old were you? So uh, fourth grade, I was nine okay. years old, you Perfect. know, when I got introduced to um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And 
I, I don't remember exactly how long it took me before I got through all of the books. I would say by the time I was in junior high school, so over about a two to three year period, I I read all seven. Okay. Were you raised in 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 faith? Was it? Did you have? I was, but I um, made no mental connection whatsoever between C.S. Lewis and Christianity, mm. or Narnia mm. and the Bible. I don't think okay. it ever occurred to me when I yeah. was um, reading them as a child, and now it's you know looking at it as an adult, it's hard to imagine how that could be. How I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see that. Yeah, well, and of course, Lewis talks about that, and I think in letters to children that that often children will make the connections and the parents will miss them. I was raised in no faith and read them about the same time. I think I was eight, eight or nine, and just swallowed them whole. Loved the adventure stories, but had no faith context. Um, but even if I had, I'm not sure that I would necessarily have have made the connection. But I remember to this day the kind of untarnished nobility of Peter really stirring something in me, you know, and I now see that that's maybe some form or aspect of righteousness or holiness that I was attracted to. But this kind of, he felt like a hero who was human, right? But also somebody that I could really put, you know, trust my heart to or something. I don't, I wouldn't have thought about it in those terms, but just, yeah, I think Lewis talked, touched on these things that that I think were very stirring. Did you return to them later, uh, the Narnias? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, through, um, so I was raised in a Christian home, mm -hmm. but during those years we're talking about when I was reading the Narnia stories, um, my parents didn't go to church anywhere. So okay. I was sort of like you would have been in, in that sense in that I wasn't connected to a church at that time. And so that didn't happen for me until about eighth grade. And um, a kid who lived down the street from me, who had been my enemy, by the way, mm. would follow me home from school if he had a friend to protect him, follow me home from school, pitching rocks at me and calling me names. Oh, wow. And somehow we went from that to becoming friends. Oh, my gosh. I don't know whether our parents knew each other or what it was. Anyway, he ended up inviting me to youth group. It never occurred to me to ask in my own mind, why is somebody who's a Christian treating me <laughs> like that? Because <laughs> I was just glad he had gone from being my enemy to being my friend. And um, he invited me to come to youth group and I turned him down flat. I was just not <laughs> interested in that. And my mother heard about that and she thought it'd be good for me to go to youth group. And she persuaded me. And so the next time he invited me, I went. And mm -hmm. it was the first youth group meeting that this very large Presbyterian church in La Jolla, California, had a new youth pastor. His name was Sonny Salisbury. Mm -hmm. And he was a huge C.S. Lewis fan. Oh, okay. And I don't remember whether that came across the first night, but eventually I learned that about him. And he was just friendly. He played guitar. He sang songs. He told stories and I was hooked and I just kept going to youth group after that. And, uh, you know, eventually I heard him talk about C.S. Lewis and whether I had made the connection between Lewis and Christianity by that time, he definitely made it for me. Okay. I think it was one of those sort of gradual things like, I, I hope it's safe to say this on an adult podcast, <laughs> right? Like, like as a kid, when you suddenly realize that Santa Claus, you know, is not really actually there at the North Pole. You know, it sort of uh -huh. dawns on you. Yeah. For some of us, it dawns on us gradually. Like, I mm -hmm. can't remember when that suddenly occurred to me. It was the same way about discovering the connection between Narnia and Christian mm -hmm. faith, between Aslan and Christ and yeah. yeah. Well, and once we get on to Lewis, it's hard to shut us up, isn't it? That's right. I don't know if your congregants play the drinking game of, you know, every time you mention Lewis in a sermon. They would love it. Or no, it's just <laughs> all of my friends. In fact, it's it's kind of like on the podcast, whenever I mention Till We Have Faces, Matt and and uh, David take a drink because I'm oh. not working on that book. <laughs> but with everybody else at large, like in seminary class, um, 
Anytime I raised my hand, my classmates would mutter, oh, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do get a bit of that. (laughs) But if that's simply, in my opinion, just because he's so eloquent on so many of the important things. So That's right. So, well, that and and that affection for him has led you to write a number of books. Um, We're talking about, of course, your biography of Van Auken, um, which is maybe a secondary relic um, when it comes to Lewis. But tell us about some of your other your other books about Lewis. I saw that. uh, Didn't you post on on social media the other day that Amazon recommended a book for you? Yeah, that's (laughs) happened more than once where Amazon recommends uh, one of my books to me. You would think somehow in their computer system they'd be able to recognize, oh, we're recommending a book by this author and it's matched the names of, but they The algorithm is true. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I got into writing Lewis, about Lewis, um, sort of, I I sort of backed into it in a way. I, Mm -hmm. I was living in South Carolina at the time. I was pastoring a church and... I got invited, uh, I was pastoring a Presbyterian church, but I got invited by the um, Anglican Society of South Carolina to uh, deliver a Lenten lecture. Mm-hmm. And they knew I had a, you know, they wanted it to be connected to Lewis somehow because they knew I had that interest. I had started a Lewis reading group. And so I did that and I, I, I did my talk on uh, something that was very interesting to me as a Presbyterian. Lewis's take on uh, predestination, you know, and, and mm-hmm. free will and how those things fit together. Mm-hmm. So I put that lecture together and then I thought, oh, that was fun. And I got some good feedback on it. And I thought mm, it'd be fun to get this published. And so I sent it off to the New York C.S. Lewis Society. And I was really thrilled that they wanted to publish it. And mm-hmm. then after that, I thought, oh, maybe I'll do this again. So then I picked a different theological topic, Lewis on scripture, another one that really fascinated me. What was mm-hmm. his take on the authority of scripture? And mm-hmm. so I did that. And again, the New York C.S. Lewis Society published it. And then I thought, oh, I could do this on a whole bunch of theological topics and did some research and found out there was really only one published book at that time on Lewis's theology mm-hmm. by John Randolph Willis, uh, hmm. a Jesuit. And, and it didn't really look at all of Lewis's theology. And I, th- I thought it'd be fun to kind of be as expansive as possible. So, so that's where my book, Mere Theology, came from, was um, just one by one uh, looking at those different theological topics, spiritual themes in Lewis. And I kind of started with a traditional list of theological loci. And then I added some different uh, Lewisian themes like love, the four loves. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it went from there. And then you did In the Footsteps of Lewis? Yes, that's another one of my books that came about in an interesting way. So, so once I was a published author on Lewis, as you've experienced, you know, you get invitations to speak in different places. And I was actually at Wheaton at the Wade Center Mm -hmm. doing a talk about uh, another one of my Lewis books called um, Speaking About Jack, Mm -hmm. which is a discussion guide to all of Lewis's books. And I, I also had um, some of my own personal photograph books there from trips I'd taken to mm-hmm. Oxford. Mm-hmm. And during the um, sort of uh, mixing fellowship time after the talk I gave, there was a woman standing there and she was looking at one of my my personal photograph books and she said, how much is this? And I, I said, oh, I'm not selling it. It's just uh-huh. my, you know, I thought people might have fun looking at it. And, so that planted in me the idea that, oh, maybe I should, you know, put together some of my own pictures from various trips, you know, and tie it mm-hmm. into uh, to Lewis's biography and put a little picture book together. So mm-hmm. that's where In the Footsteps of C.S. Lewis, which Amazon recommended to me. 
Good. That's an excellent use of their algorithm. Yeah. Well, I love there are there actually are are surprisingly few of those picture books. I think through Joy and Beyond, Walter was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And then images of images of his world. Right. Which that's my favorite, and and it's such a wonderful book. You know, by Clyde Kilby and Douglas Gilbert. Right. I think that book may have been my first introduction to. Any sort of biography of Lewis. Oh, really? Yeah. Was reading that. And I don't, my original version of it was paperback. So I mm-hmm. probably, I don't know, sometime in the late 70s was yeah. when I came across that. That long, skinny one. They've since updated it and, and have a yes. nice, snazzy green cover. And then uh, I have each Rebecca. version of it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Um, and then uh, Hal and Rebecca Poe did the um, Inklings of Oxford. Yes, that's was, a lovely, lovely book. So, um, and there's a few others you haven't mentioned, but there's a number of them on the market. The uh, the Irish one is uh, the Sandy Smith yes. one is yes. great. And I get about to put Very one detailed. of those on my yep my eBay shelf. So, well, tell me a little bit about Sheldon Van Aken. We've talked. Matt and I have gone through the book. We took three different weeks to kind of make our way through the book with our observations about Van Aken. Love to hear a little bit about uh, about the biography, how you came about it, how you researched it, a little bit about your, I don't want to spoil too much, but you had some encounters with Van Aken. And um, yeah, I'd love to, to spend the balance of our time kind of thinking about that book. And um, once again, you can get it um, from Winged Lion Press. Listeners, of course, will have a link. It's, it's, uh, I wish I could, I always show pictures to the microphone for our podcast and that doesn't help folks (laughs) much, but um, I was very struck by all the pictures and the detail of the research. I think it's a great addition. It's kind of, I have a section, whole section of my library called C.S. Lewis and, right? Lewis and philosophy, Lewis and Dorothy Sayers, Lewis and this and that. And it fills a a needed hole because um, I can, well, tell us more. Yes, and I wish that they were color pictures in my Van Alken book. That my in the footsteps book is full color, and mm-hmm. but it results in a more expensive book, and and it would have made the Van Alken book just too expensive for most people. But uh, you know, I, I wish it could be that way. Anyway, so let me take you back to where I encountered his book, yeah. *A Severe Mercy*. So I mentioned my youth pastor growing Mm -hmm. up. So I really got involved in the youth group at La Jolla Presbyterian Church. And then I started going on Sunday mornings. And then our youth pastor also had a teen choir. He was a professional musician. And the big thing every year was to get to go on the um, teen choir tour. And one year we went up and down the West Coast performing in churches and other venues. And every year we'd be performing a a different set of music, a musical or various things. Mm -hmm. But to be able to go on that, you had to do some reading outside of the Bible. And he would recommend, you know, Christian books to read, not Mm -hmm. only before the trip, but then he would carry around a, a cardboard box filled with paperback books and he'd pass it around the bus and you had to pick out a book you were going to read, you know? So I reached into this cardboard box and I actually pulled out two books, two paperbacks. One was A Grief Observed, Mm -hmm. which was new to me at that point. And Mm -hmm. the other was A Severe Mercy. And what attracted me was not the topic. I mean, here I was, you know, that, that may have been the summer after I graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. I had gone through very little loss in my life. There's no reason why a grief observed and a severe mercy should have appealed to me, except it was the C.S. Lewis connection. And, mm-hmm. and I figured anybody who'd written Narnia, you know, anything he had to say had to be valuable and yeah. would eventually be meaningful to me. So... So that's what attracted me to both books because the paperback copy, which I have here and is falling apart. And like you said, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to show this to the microphone. The little yellow one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it says includes 18 previously unpublished letters by C.S. Lewis. 
And Lewis's name is in bigger, bolder type <laughs> than Van Auken's name. And that's what attracted me. Uh, same. So yeah. then I started into reading it on that trip, and I did not make it very far. Hmm. The first chapter, uh, Glenn Merrill revisited where he recounts going back to his childhood home and and sort of the ghost of his dead wife uh, being there in the air. Um, it just bored me to tears. It just like I said, I'm I'm I was a very slow reader and still am. And and something would like have to grab me like from the first sentence or the first couple paragraphs. And it just I felt like it was a slog. Mm. And uh, so I put the book down and I didn't, I didn't pick it up again for quite some time, mm. but I didn't throw it out either. I, I, uh -huh. I kept a hold of it. And so sometime between that time, that was 1981, mm -hmm. and the next year after I'd gone through a year of college, the following year, I went on a sort of personal pilgrimage to the British Isles. And traveled around all by myself, reading all the C.S. Lewis books I hadn't read up to that point in time. Mm -hmm. But I know I had finished Severe Mercy by that time because so many of the images in the two Oxford chapters mm -hmm. kind of prepared me for what I was going to see in Oxford. Yeah. And yeah. the story of Christians Never Say Goodbye. Yes. In, in fact, on my time in Oxford, I found myself on a Sunday evening standing on the high street opposite the Eastgate Hotel, yep. and it suddenly hit me, oh, I'm standing in the spot where C.S. Lewis yeah. would have stood when he turned around and <laughs> boomed across the street, Christians never say goodbye. Never say goodbye. I, you know, I've got a bone to pick with Jack about that, um, because goodbye is the contraction for God be with ye. <laughs> so, you know, if I if he were around, I'd, I'd fight with him. But yeah, that's You're same so experience. technical. Uh, well... Yeah, English teacher. Um, but that experience too, when I finally got to Oxford, I felt like I could navigate the place without having to look around much just because I had read so much about it. I remember visiting Marge Mead in her office at the Wade Center and she has that poster, that the aerial view mm. of Oxford. Yes. Um, and, you know, I could trace the high street down to Maudlin and where there's the East Gate and there's, there's uh, you know, and... Yeah, I felt like I could I could navigate and and it gave me chills being there and the first month after being in Oxford, I think I dreamt about it every week and maybe every month for the first year. And so and but Van Aken was a huge piece of that cuz I think he captures it so well. So Yes, he captured it in words and uh images of his world by Clyde Kilby and Douglas Gilbert. Um yeah. that gave me the only technical information I had to guide me to any places. And at that time in 1982, uh, C.S. Lewis was not much remembered or talked mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. in Oxford. You may remember that coincidentally was the year that uh, the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society started there. But, but I was there in the summer. I didn't know anything about that starting. Mm -hmm. There just weren't many people who remem remembered or talked about Lewis there at that time. There weren't any mm -hmm. guides published or anything yeah. like that. I sort of had to find my way. The cottage industry hadn't, I think, quite become the evangelical patron saint um, right. uh, at that point. Well, tell us about meeting Van Auken and, um, and, and, and that encounter and, and kind of what you learned about Lewis from being with him. Yes. So I, even though I had such a rough start with a severe mercy, mm -hmm. once I read through the book, I fell in love with, again, just like I fell in love with Narnia, there were several aspects of severe mercy that just drew me in. Like you were mentioning about yourself. So, so I was a young man reading this, 18, 19 years old. I was very idealistic. I was a romantic with a capital R. Mm -hmm. I loved the romantic poets. And so the poetry drew me in once I got to the, those parts. The just full-on romantic relationship between mm -hmm. Van and Davy, as he describes it, I thought, this is everything I would want, mm -hmm. you know, in, mm -hmm. uh, in a spouse, in mm -hmm. a lover. And 
So that drew me in, but even more the Oxford chapters. And I, mm -hmm. when I read it, I hadn't even been to Oxford, but just the picture that he painted. And, and the spiritual questions that he was asking were very much my questions. Mm -hmm. Though, again, I'd grown up in the church, had a time where I wasn't involved in church, and then got involved in youth group and all of that. I still had questions, intellectual questions about, could I, you know, emotionally, I had received Jesus, but I still had questions about, can I really go on believing that he is the son of God, you know, like I've been taught. Is he fully God, fully man? What? And how do I, you know, how do I know what the gospels say is true? And hmm. all these same kind of questions that Van Auken wrestled with in different ways. And so that was the biggest appeal to me in the book. Hmm. And then I found the the chapters on on his grief when he loses Davy. Uh, just hauntingly beautiful. Yeah. Now he wrote this book fairly quickly, didn't he? He did over a summer, really. Uh -huh. But he spent a good amount of time editing. He actually yeah. tells us uh, that he that he wrote each chapter three times, which mm -hmm. I think means you know he he was doing it on a typewriter, right. and so I think that means that he wrote out each chapter on the typewriter mm -hmm. one time, and then he looked it over, and then he'd write it out again, and then mm -hmm. a third time. The only place where he did more was with that first chapter, Glenn Merrill Revisited. He says mm -hmm. he wrote that 14 times. Oh, my goodness. All of it I find kind of amazing because I don't know about you, but as a writer, I mean, I'm working on a computer Mm -hmm. I lose track of the number of times that uh, I'm working on a book right now. I'm already up to eight versions of it, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, and our friend Tolkien with his 12 volumes of false starts to the Lord oh, yeah. of the Rings. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, a, and our mutual friend Diana Glyer um, talks about, you know, I think eight or nine drafts is, is, is not bad uh, for her as a, as, a, as a teacher of writing. Right, you know, to, right. To kind of find your way. So I I fell in love with the book for m multiple reasons, and mm -hmm. then it became one of those books I loved so much I I kept going back to it and reading it again, and again. And um, then when I was at seminary at Princeton Seminary, I was part of a student group, mm -hmm. and we would have speakers come in, and I decided to write to Sheldon Van Auken and see if he would come and and address our group. And he wrote back a very polite little postcard and said, no. <laughs> he said, I'm a writer, not a speaker, but if you ever come to the South, look me up. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was nice, but I didn't really, amazingly, didn't really think any more of it uh, mm. for about 10 years. And then I found myself living in the South. Mm -hmm. My family South had South Carolina, moved. right? Yeah, I was in South Carolina. He was in Virginia, but my family had moved to Virginia. So I had reason to be in that area. And I had just recently started a, a C.S. Lewis Society in South Carolina. I got, I had this sort of renaissance experience of returning to all things Lewis. And mm -hmm. I thought, hmm, I wonder if he's still around. And mm -hmm. so I wrote to him. I had saved the postcard. Yeah. So I found it. and wrote to that address and uh, he wrote back. And that, that led to the first of two meetings face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. And listeners, a lot of this is detailed in the book and it's a, it's a fetching read. It's, uh, it's such, a, such a gift to have, because I don't think many people really invested in him. Lots of people have gotten to know Walter Hooper over the years, but um. Uh, I regret that I was in Lynchburg once uh, when I was traveling with Phil Keggy and hadn't made the connection. Um, when did when did Van Auken die? In 1996. Okay. So he would have still been around in 92 or something when I was there. Right. I wish that I had had the, had the chance to. to he was very that. open and, and welcoming of hmm. people who wanted to meet him. And hmm. uh, he looked at that as a ministry. You know, he he called it his postcard ministry because most people that he uh, 
wrote back to fans who would write to him. He he uh-huh. would initially write back with a postcard, and uh-huh. then if the correspondence ensued and and got really interesting, then then you'd start to get more detailed letters from him. Hmm. You know, I I I think I I don't know why I've thought so much about Walter Hooper when when thinking about Van Aken and your relationship with him. Well, but, they knew each other. Right. Um, that Norman Cross, I've been looking for a copy of that for years. There's a picture in the book of, uh, of a Norman crucifix that Van Aken gave to Lewis. And that, of course, hung in Walter's bedroom. That's um, right. Yeah. For a number of years. Yeah. I would love to know what's happened to that now. <laughs> I asked Walter about it once, and this was towards the end where he was starting to get a little confused. Mm. And Walter said, um, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't give that to you. I've given it to my godson. All right. That's what I would have expected. And I wasn't asking for it. I was just asking where it came from. I wanted to get one, you know, like that. And Van Auken had, uh, that was a copy that he had made for Lewis. And and he had one in in his home. And I imagine it's still there with Van Auken's godson who lives in Van Auken's former home. So, oh wow, I may uh, I may have to see if I can track that down. Did he give you a sense of Lewis that doesn't come through necessarily in Lewis's books? Absolutely. Hmm. Tell us something. Definitely. About that. Just well, as you know, with when you travel to a certain place that mm-hmm. you've read about, mm-hmm. like traveling to Oxford, it. Being in the place gives you a feeling that is not necessarily different than what you got from the book, but builds on it and fills it out and mm-hmm. associates smells and tastes and, you know, it engages all of the senses. And um, in the same way, you know, meeting somebody whose book you've just absolutely loved just, just fills out the picture. And mm-hmm. I feel almost apologetic about it now, but when I met Van Auken, <laughs> I was really more interested in C.S. Lewis than I was in, I mean, I was interested in Van Auken and his story very much so, but mm-hmm. most of my questions I realized that I asked him that first time we got together all had to do with C.S. Lewis. And just meeting Van gave me a feel for what I think a little bit of what Lewis would have been like. Even though Van was an American, he was a heavy smoker like mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis was. So, mm-hmm. so that would have been similar. His mm-hmm. uh, love of, of literature and the books he had around the room, that would have been similar. He mm-hmm. was also not the tidiest person in the world. That, <laughs> that would have been similar to Lewis. And, and he was only 16 years difference in age okay. from Lewis. So there were just a lot of things. And obviously knowing the man, just the whole atmosphere being there with him in his yeah. tiny little cottage and looking at his first edition copies of Lewis's books. And I'd pull one off the shelf and open it up and and he would have a review in it from some newspaper in England, you know, from when he mm. first read the book, or mm-hmm. he'd have copies of his letters from Lewis tucked into the pages of Mere Christianity or some of the other books. Yeah. And didn't you ask him if those are the originals? I did. I, yeah. <laughs> I foolishly asked him, oh, are those the originals? And he was horrified. No, no, no. I, I gave the originals to the Bodleian then. Yeah, Malcolm Geit has got uh, one of uh, Malcolm's wife, Maggie's father had been a student of Lewis's and had a letter from him. And so to actually hold one of those in the hands, yeah, to, to yeah, kind of- it's lovely. And for those of us who loved Lewis, but were never able to meet him, you know, and the those who actually knew Lewis and who are still alive, you know, the, the, that number's getting getting smaller. Yeah, there there is something, and maybe this is more true of Lewis than Van Auken, there's something about Lewis's writing style that encourages that personal encounter or even though Lewis himself called it the personal heresy, you know, that <laughs> that we shouldn't really be interested in in the life of the poet. We should be interested in what the poetry is pointing us toward. And it mm-hmm. doesn't in Lewis's mind, it shouldn't point us toward the poet, but 
something, you know, that the poet is trying to tell us about. Even so, Lewis has this ability, especially in the Narnia Chronicles, where you almost feel like the narrator is your own uncle mm-hmm. telling you the story. Mm-hmm. And and so there's something about Lewis's writing style. You get it also in Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. You just mm-hmm. feel like you want to meet this, this man. And there was, I think, a real generosity uh, of him. I'm sure you've heard Walter tell this story because Walter had a had a smallish stock that he told <laughs> that he told again and again. Um, but he said that Jack told him, "When in doubt, give more." Yeah, you know, and when you're in, when he was in doubt about whether or not he should answer the letter, to answer the letter, and I think that some of that generosity seems to have rubbed off on those people who uh, who had known Lewis. And- Definitely. The more people I've met who knew C.S. Lewis, the one thing that stands out to me about every one of them is that their life was marked mm. by meeting this person indelibly mm-hmm. in a positive way. Mm. And that can't always be said of every famous yeah. person. Or even every famous writer. Um, Doug Gresham once said that the thing that the biographers most miss was the persistent sound of laughter uh, in the home, that they were always having this kind of humorous good time. And that wasn't because of a a lack of tragedy or because of financial success. I I think that, what does Chesterton say? The reason why angels can fly is because they take themselves so lightly. I love that. And I think that Lewis Lewis did the same, right? And that, that seems to have rubbed off. Absolutely. Hmm. I'd like to know a little bit more about, um, about the biography. I was especially struck, and I didn't know about this before I read, uh, before I read your book, about um, Davy's daughter. Can you tell me, us a little bit more about Marion? Yes. So, so when I met Van Auken in 1996, I had no intention, no idea of writing a biography about him. Like I said, I was really more interested in his reflections on C.S. Lewis. And Mm -hmm. it wasn't until years later that the idea sort of came to me. And it came out of my obsession, really, out of all 14 published books that I have this book about Van Auken was the most the result of an obsession. I was <laughs> obsessed with finding out where Glenn Merrill was. Mm. And Van Auken himself had given me the clue. He let me know that he had gone to Wabash College. So then mm. I knew it was in Indianapolis. And he also told me that he had gone to Stanton Military Academy in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so... Years and years later, Van Auken was long gone, and I visited the the museum of Stanton Military Academy, which the school no longer exists. And because the school was no longer in existence, they were willing to let me see his student card with his information. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found out that um, Glenn Merrill was in Carmel, uh, Indiana, just outside Uh of uh, Indianapolis. And so the whole book came out of that. But the year that I met Van Auken, like I said, I met with him twice. Then he died that fall, and I went to his uh, memorial service at Mm -hmm. St. Stephen's in Forest, Virginia. And beforehand, a number of his friends gathered in his little home, Van Cott. Mm -hmm. And among the people there was Davy's daughter, uh, Marion was the name that Davy had given to her. Uh, she had had a child out of wedlock when she was uh, 14 years old. Yeah, there's there's the picture. <laughs> Listeners, I, you can hear the picture from from uh, from uh, from Will's book. So Davy was born in 1914, as was mm-hmm. Van, and so she had had this child in 1928. So. Her daughter, Marion, was the same age as my mother, coincidentally. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. And we just got on like a house on fire. We, we, I, I gave her a ride to the uh, service at St. Stephen's, and we stayed in touch over the years. And then when it came to uh, 
I decided out of this obsession about Glenn Merrill to then write a biography of Van Auken because I was finding out so many interesting things. Uh, she was very cooperative and provided pictures and yeah, it it was really hmm. just amazing. So had she had a re any relationship with her mother at all? She had not. So uh, the child was given up for adoption, mm -hmm. and for many many years, she Marion didn't know anything about her uh, biological parents, mm -hmm. and then it was in the eighties when you know she had been interested for many years in finding out more and just couldn't just couldn't and then through a series of circumstances a a, a door opened for her and van auken at the same time was interested in finding this daughter that davy had had mm -hmm. and so suddenly marion finds out that um I'm not sure if she ever found out who her biological father was, but she mm -hmm. found out about Davy, and they told her, "Look, your your mother's dead, but the man that she later married would like to meet you. Mm -hmm. Do you want to pursue it?" And she did, mm -hmm. and and then the person from the adoption agency told her, "And this man is an author, and he's written a book all mm -hmm. about, you know, this love relationship with your with your mother, and it's called mm -hmm. a severe mercy." Well, she went right around to the bookstore. I think she got a hold of that Bantam paperback because that was mm -hmm. the only version I think that had right. that picture on the back. Right. And that was the first time she saw a picture of her mother. Mm. And so out of that, she um, wrote to Van and they established a correspondence. Then they eventually met together on a number of occasions and uh, established a very close friendship. She even ended up calling him father, right? Yes. Oh, now, but she she had had adopted parents, right? That's right. She'd been adopted actually by a minister and his wife, because Davy's parents, her father was a minister, mm -hmm. and so it was kind of a natural connection that way. Hmm. And I noticed that you dedicated the book to Marion. Yes, absolutely. She was just uh, a lovely lady. Your book is just such a treasure. I mean, I love well-researched things. I love, you know, finding out the background. I think that I would probably, in addition to arguing with Jack about goodbye, um, I think that maybe it's time to update the argument about personal heresy. I think it's <laughs> it's too quick a dismissal. Um, I of, would agree. You know, and and our our colleague Joel Heck, who has uh, his site joelheck.com and his wonderful, freely accessible. Um, uh, chronologically Lewis, his 1,200-page chronology of every date in Lewis's life. Uh, listeners, you can go to, to joelheck.com, download this. Um, Joel has read every biography, every diary, every book, scoured the Wade Center, everything he could find. Um, and every date that he can be sure of, he has, and even the dates that he's conjectured, he's put those uh, available in a chronology. It's fantastic. Yeah. It seems crazy to some of the people when I tell them about it, but I think that part of the industry around Lewis that helps perpetuate such so much of the good that he did is in some ways um, uh, a combination of biography and obsession, right? I mean, my own work on finding the original meeting of Joy Davidman, you know, they didn't meet the first time at the Eastgate Hotel. Um, they met a week earlier, at least. And Lewis had her staying at his home in September of 52 before they came to the East Gate. Wow. And Phyllis Williams, there was no such person as Phyllis Williams. It was it was Michael Williams who came to the East Gate or who met them at the at the at the Mitre and I think went along to it. All of this to say. Oh, it's yeah, I'm gonna do some that's part of my work at, at Northwind in my work on Till We Have Faces is looking at their initial relationship. And it's this strange thing, which I'm sure that you've experienced, having studied Van Aken and read what he did, and then to actually meet the person. Or when I have contact with Douglas Gresham, it's like, wait, this person I'm obsessing about was not this literary figure. That was your mom, right? That was that was your mother. 
But I think that knowing about the biography, especially with Lewis, because he was so consistent, he would say the same thing in a letter and a poem and an essay and a book, all written around the same time, and it would reflect his personal circumstance. Right. Van Auken was different in that he was more secretive about some things. Hmm. What do you think that was about? I think a number of things. One one is uh, that he had a a well-known father, it, at least well-known in Indiana. Mm-hmm. You know, his father was a politician, mm-hmm. a very wealthy lawyer, mm-hmm. and his father started the Indiana Broadcasting Company. Oh, wow. So um, I think part of it was he benefited from that, right. but he also wanted to be distinct from that, especially mm-hmm. when it when he started writing books. Mm. And so that's why he, I think that's why, I can only guess, but I think that's why he never mentions his parents' names. Mm. He even spells his name slightly differently. Oh, does he really? You know, instead of Van and then capital A-U-K-E-N, you know, he, mm. he puts he puts both parts oh. of the name Together, Together, you know, just little things like that. And in Severe Mercy, he never mentions uh, his parents' uh, names, which their names were Glenn uh, Mm -hmm. Van Auken. That was his middle name. And his mother's middle name was Merrill. And that's where Glenn Merrill comes from. Oh, I see. So it was fun just discovering all these little uh, Mm -hmm. things, you know, that for whatever reason, he kind of keeps in the shadows. Well, and, you know, Michael Ward has has uh, astutely pointed out Lewis's own secretiveness. And then I've done some subsequent work looking at the way that Lewis is always self-referential. And so I'm now starting to draw a much, much wider autobiographical arc over Lewis's life. Because now I think till we have faces his autobiography, certainly as McGrath points out. Um, uh, Grief Observed is autobiographical, Surprised by Joy, but then early post. I think Lewis, because he was so secretive, stuff kind of spills out. Um, and it, it makes for a great, right. de- great detective story, I think. Yes, exactly. As a Lewis scholar, to find out things that nobody else knew is not all that hard to do when it comes to comes to that circle. And I'm so glad that you've kind of gotten the shovel in and 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 done all the spade work to to fill out this part of of Lewis's life in in terms of his relationship with Van Auken. Well, it was great fun. Hmm. Well, we're just about out of time, um, but uh, we just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, as the landlord um, rings the bell, I'm having trouble. We're um, we're trying to find a pub crawl in Oxford of all the Lewis pubs, but so many of them are closing right now. Yes. Hopefully they'll come back. I hear the lamb and flag may be opening up yes. again this summer. But um, so as the landlord rings the final bell uh, for last call, would you let our listeners know uh, where they can go to to find out more about you, to pick up a copy of your book, The Man Who Received a Severe Mercy? Also, listeners, I'm getting my eBay shelf up and running again in the new house, and I realize I have not only a copy of the paperback, uh, I have a copy of the hardback. And then I have a copy of Davy's edition, um, As do which I. you mentioned. There are only ten. Th- yeah, did he give? Did he give you a copy? Or you've no? You no. The first time I saw it. a copy was the first time I house. met with Van Auken because I asked him, "Did you take any photographs when you were in Oxford?" And he said no, uh, that he'd given up photography by that time. But he said, "There's a book behind you that has some photographs in it," and oh, it wow. was Davy's edition of. A severe mercy. So, my my mother and my wife got together and bought me oh. a copy, and I had him sign it the next time I met with them. Oh, fantastic! Well, I tracked down an extra copy in addition to my own reader reader's copy, so that'll be going up on the eBay soon. But where can we find all of these marvelous Will Voss books, especially uh, especially the man who received a severe mercy? So you can find them all on Amazon. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can learn about them on my website, willvoss.com. That's W I L L 
VAUS.com. Wonderful. Well, Will, it's great to renew our friendship. Um, I look forward to the next time our paths cross. Wish that it could be in Oxford, but if it ever it is, I won't buy you a gin, but I'd be happy to stand you to a pint. Um, wherever. <laughs> or how about a glass of sherry? A glass of, I think that that would be perfect. Let's yes. do that. So thanks again to you for taking the time and for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, we also like to thank our Patreon supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Those include, of course, Marvin, Joelle, Angela, Deborah number one, Deborah number two, Amanda, Thomas, Narnia Mouse, uh, Bill and Joanna, Snort and Bud, Shane and John, Kevin, Brian and Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary and Stephen, uh, Matt and Kelly, Chris and John, James, Kate, Peter, David and Rowdy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we hope that you will share it with a friend. Um, and please join us next time where we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>